Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're, you're a veteran of, of the World Economic Forum. It's Sam's first Davos. I, I'm, I'm curious how receptive do you think world leaders will be to you know, that message that we just heard, um, maybe leaning into the disruptive changes that AI will bring and perhaps you know, not as much fighting them. Yeah, well, I think that uh, you know, we're in a really incredible moment in technology, and I'm sure everybody knows that and can feel it, experience that it's awesome. And we were just at this UK safety summit together, and this is where regulators from around the world are really coming together in a really unique way, because I had never seen the minister of every technology country coming into a forum to say, we are going to regulate this technology. You know, you, you look at social media over the last decade, it's been a fucking shit show, what's been going on. And regulators have not done their job. And so to see them actually start to take this very seriously, that is amazing and very important. And I think this idea that companies like OpenAI or uh, Microsoft and others want to create digital people that can do all kinds of tasks that we do um, you know, will they be taxed? How they'll be re regulated? What are the dangers involved? All of these kind of important questions. At the same time, we want to have these incredible benefits of AI that we're all experiencing. Better healthcare, better education, you know, augmentation of our, yep. Let me tell you an incredible story where I was just in Milan with Gucci and uh, they brought us in to work on their call center. And very excited, how do we use AI? How do we create better customer service? Um, but we don't really know what is their end goal. Is it more productivity? You know, is it just better customer relationships? Is it higher margins? Do they want to reduce staff? Do they want to increase staff? But when we apply the technology that we're seeing now, what we saw was the current state of AI, which is really the ability to augment human being and human performance. Revenues went up 30% because these individuals who are call center service agents also then simultaneously became sales agents, marketing agents. They were able to do all these things that they just could not do before. And that's a tremendous theme, I think, that's going on. I feel that way myself, you know, when I'm with uh, ChatGPT or Copilot or Anthropic Cloud or whatever it is, Mistral, I get that same feeling. Oh, wow, I've got a little bit more capability than I had before because I'm being augmented through AI. And I'm sure it's true in a lot of disciplines. Uh, certainly it's true in healthcare, and it's going to be true in a lot more things. But we're on an arc, and we all know that, that 
you know, there, it's going to start to be able to do things that will be fundamentally a surrogate for what we all do today. And, and what will determine whether a company can be successful with AI or not? How long will it be until I come to Davos to be interviewed by the Bloomberg AI? That's what I really <laughs> oh, want to know. I'm getting replaced. Well, maybe, you know. I mean, we've, I been, doing, we've been doing this together for a long time, right? What, couple decades, few decades? I'm not that old, but okay. <laughs> but you know what I mean, where it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know. We, when we get to this point where there's not just all of us in the room, but there's an AI as well participating in this conversation, and we're about to create digital people, digital salespeople, digital service people, digital marketing people. Um, and, you know, certainly we can see it in radiology already. You know, I, I had a CTA scan, you know, where they look at your heart with a CT scanner over the last 15 years. I've had three of them. Everything good? Everything's good. Great. What was interesting was, 15 years ago when I did it, the guys who did it in LA, who kind of invented calcium scoring and all that kind of stuff, they were there looking at the screen, et cetera, and then the computer comes out and says, gives a number like six, five, four. Then, five years ago, it was actually quite a bit better, and the CT scan got a lot better. And last year, it was amazing. But then, they took the scan from last year, and then they can just put it into this new software product, and they got the same result as if the radiologist was reading it there. And I think that is very interesting because, hey, I can go to an incredible scanning center in LA, but think about all the places in the world who may not have that top flight radiologist, now they have it. That's a level of democratization and equanimity made possible by AI and technology that we just don't have before and is a digital radiologist. So. Yeah, we're going to have to have government step in. We're going to have to have partnership. It's going to have to be a multi-stakeholder dialogue. And we're going to have to get to a higher level when it comes to AI. And we're going to have to visualize the future and think about what's going to happen. Because as Sam likes to say, we don't really know what's going to happen next. But we all saw Minority Report. You know, we saw War Games. We, we know about HAL. You know, we saw the movie Her. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to fill it in. A lot of people who are in this room could come in here and sit in this chair and kind of give their prophecy on AI because we've all been living this, you know, in science fiction is becoming a reality. Right. And that's what's really interesting. And I think we should just admit, wow, this is really amazing. And we don't completely know. Well, so, you know, turning away from sci-fi and projecting based on what you know, what, what's your current thinking about the extent of the coming disruption to labor markets? And do you worry about the potential kind of political ramifications of dislocation and what that might do to the political process in terms of fueling candidates that might take advantage of that dissatisfaction? I, I think that when I just got out of a meeting with 200 CEOs for the last four hours, and the, you know what CEOs want is they want more margin, they want more productivity, they want higher value customer relationships. These are the three things that universally every CEO wants. Now, you know, how are they going to get it? Okay, what, what will it do for them? Well, they're going to get it through this kind of incredible AI technology. That's why we're feathering it into all of our apps and our platform. So our Einstein product, which already does a trillion AI transactions a week, both predictive and generative, 
Well, that technology, it must augment our customers' employees and their customers as well. So whether they're doing commerce or sales or service or marketing, whatever, augmentation of the human experience, this is a tremendous opportunity that's at hand right now. So that radiologist who's reading that scan can be there going, has a partner next to them, which is that AI. And that idea that we can be augmented or that Gucci you know, service rep is now being augmented by that AI. And that is what we're really seeing as the opportunity in today's present moment with the current generation of AI. With the current technology, it's really about human augmentation. We can do a lot to augment human beings in these incredibly powerful new ways. And we should focus on that ourselves. For our kids, we can give them incredible you know, tutors that are helping them as long as the human remains in the loop. Because as we all know, these things lie pretty bad. Well, they call them hallucinations to kind of taper it down. But all of a sudden, I'm sure we've all had this experience where you put some you know, prompt in, and all of a sudden, it's, it's like, no, that's not. We know it's not right. And then we'll go, well, that's weird. And then we'll turn to our friend who works at one of these companies. Oh, yeah, it's a hallucination. I'm like, wow, it looks like a lie to me. Do you, do you worry about the impact this might have on the democratic process as we head into a year with 77 elections around the world? Well, I mean, I think I started worrying about that when we saw what was happening with these social media companies. Let's start there. That still has not been addressed. Isn't that, how many articles have you written about that? Do I need to pull them all out, their headlines? I mean, the reality is, is that that remains the number one issue. And I think that that idea that that's kind of out there that we need to address tech companies' core values. What is really important to these tech companies and how they operate is everybody's business. And, you know, we can see that also even with the AI companies. Hey, I own Time, you know that, and Bloomberg and New York Times, and we're all finding our intellectual property, your stories, your work that Bloomberg paid for or Time paid for or New York Times paid for surfacing in these results because all the day training data has been stolen. That is a pretty big thought that there's a commodity user interface. We can see that because you can get your iPhone or Google phone and go to the Play Store or the App Store and download the OpenAI app or download the Copilot app commodity UI on the front end. In the middle, you have what's becoming, I think, somewhat highly commoditized uh, large language models. So we can see that because the open source models and even the best of the um, proprietary models are pretty close. And then you have this broad set of training data which is kind of the third tier of it, which has been just basically ripped off. Right. Okay, so you probably didn't have time to negotiate with Sam while he was on his way out, but what's, what's the fair price for Time's content? Well, we're waiting for Bloomberg to actually complete their negotiations, <laughs> and then we're going <laughs> to leverage that point. I mean, nobody really exactly knows because this has all happened just in a period of hours. You know, we saw that Axel got a deal, and, you know, we've, we see New York Times is suing, and I don't know what Bloomberg is doing, and I don't even know really what Time is doing, but... I know that, you know, if you're going to use this data, I think that probably there's a pretty great company to be built on a standardized set of training data that lets all these companies play a fair, fair game and let the content creators like yourself get paid fairly for their work. And I think that bridge has not yet been crossed, and that's a mistake 
by the AI companies. You, Very easy to do. Do you worry that the proliferation of these models could further undermine the news business? No, I think that, you know, what we just saw what happened, you know, with the uh, Arena Group, right, where they published a couple of AI uh, articles and the CEO basically got, you know, shot in the street um, by the market, you know, that said, whoa, that wasn't exactly right. And I'm sure, I don't know if you have this experience, but I have this experience, well, I'll even read a, an article written by an AI about me and I'll go, whoa, yeah, I guess I'm pr actually pretty good or that's a lot better than I even remember that. So. You know, there's a, you can tell the difference between, and you've read the AI stories and so have I, between, hey, a first draft that then, you know, is shaped and, and really worked on by a professional writer like yourself and just an AI and it gets shot into the, the network. And we're still not at that point yet where, you know, that, that AI is ready to be unleashed. And I don't know exactly how we're going to, you know, be ready for that moment, but it will be a moment that we all have to think about. Um, I want to hit a couple more issues before we run out of time. Uh, we had Satya Nadella here this morning. Um, Microsoft Teams is competing with Salesforce and Slack in, in the marketplace. I know you guys have had some success in getting the EU to stop Microsoft from, from bundling Teams together with its office suite. Um, do you think Microsoft now, I haven't checked the, the market today, but perhaps the most valuable company in the world, that there should be more attention on Microsoft and its practices in terms of bundling software? Well, this all happened way before we bought Slack, which is that Microsoft, of course, has a multi-decade history of bundling products and new initiatives into core products where they have a monopoly to achieve market share in new, new places. And we all know those stories, the Netscape story, you know, and, and many other stories. And uh, I think that there was a case that would have been made that the EU is looking at that they did this also to the, to the Slack founders. And uh, I think that's going to be up to the EU to decide. They've obviously made some very aggressive statements. But I think, look, it gets back to core values. You know, what kind of company are you building? What are your values? How are you operating? Salesforce is now two and a half decades old. You know, we've got 70,000 employees. We're, you know, have given guidance that, you know, we're looking to do revenue in the mid-30s. This year, it's a, it's a huge software company, third largest software company, second largest in Japan. And what I'm most proud of is the core values that we've been able to maintain, which is our trust, focus on trust at the number one point, customer success, the level of innovation, our, our importance of equality and equity in how we operate our business, and also sustainable. Well, I, I think I'm trying I'm, I'm fishing okay. to get you to unlock your inner sure. Larry Ellison. Oh, is, all right. Does Microsoft abuse its market power? Well, that, that's my mentor, as you know. And look, I think this is, look, it's been decided by the courts before that that has happened many other times. So, you know, I don't know if it's to happen again. Let's see what the courts decide, and let's see how the regulators decide. But all the data, it's very clear. I mean, everybody knows what the data is. And a lot of people here probably have their own you know, opinion. But I don't want to come in and take the role of the regulator. I don't think that's fair for me to take that okay. position. Um, yesterday uh, in the US, Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus. And I, I just wanted to ask you, I asked Satya, I asked Sam, and Anna, it's on my mind. You know, what's at stake in, in, this, in this monumental election in the US? I know it's fashionable every four years to say, this is the most important ele national election in our lifetime. Where is your head at right now as we look at election in the US, 77 other national elections are around the world? What do you feel like is at stake for this planet? 
and maybe a little more provincially for Salesforce, for you, for your family? Well, I think that for me, you know, I, I've looked, you know, been through this now so many times, even as the CEO of Salesforce, that administrations change, but getting back to my previous answer, my core values don't change. The company's core values do not change. And I think this is extremely important. Obviously, the U.S. government is a large customer of Salesforce, and depending on who's in office, it creates a whole stir with a different part of our employee base. So that's just a reality. But the reality is, is that, hey, we are the same company regardless of when that election is going to occur and regardless of who that president will be. And we have to operate with a set of core values, true north, know what we're doing, know where we're going, and, uh, and, and operate in that way. And I hope that we've been able to do that for two and a half decades. Not that we haven't made mistakes. Every CEO needs forgiveness, and every company needs forgiveness. Every reporter also needs forgiveness. But... <laughs> Yes, you're what Present company except you're what he meant to say. Yeah. But I think that we have to realize that, you know, I don't think you can put a CEO in that box and say, and now what? Mm -hmm. Because that's, there's no answer. Yeah. Sorry, one more. Have you been surprised uh, at the level of pushback, not the right word, uh, by some voices in Silicon Valley against DEI, ESG, it feels like a vocal tide that's rising. Maybe I'm checking Twitter too often, but yeah. I know you're spending too much time. Yeah, no, I am, and I'm trying to cut back. But you, you know, I, you, I think I had to put a timer limit on myself. So I yeah, guess. what what is going on, and how are you reading the the room right now in terms of these kind of counter movements against diversity, against ESG? Yeah. You know, l let me tell you how I look at it, which is uh, obviously I have lived this lived it and should we pay women the same for what a man gets paid let's start there should men and women be paid the same for the same work yes, yes or no i is it a debate still well, is for, it a question apparently mark apparently for for elon and his uh, well i actually don't know i never had that conversation yeah. with him i don't know the answer actually for him but I know that in my own data set in my company, when I looked at do we pay men and women equally for equal work, we did not. And as we acquired companies, because we've acquired about 60 companies over 25 years, in all of those data sets, there was this huge variation. And it's like, really? It's 2024. Can we not agree that we're going to pay men and women equally for the same work? Is this not something we can agree to? Because in the data, it says that we do not. And when we've made those slight adjustments, all of a sudden in our own company, it all of a sudden gets off again. So it's an equity issue or an equality issue, right? It's pay equality, we call it, right? And I think that that's a really good place to start any debate or conversation, and I do, by the way, because I'll have folks, not just yourself, but other CEOs who want to take me on and say, hey, what's your position on equity today? Or what's your position on equality today? And say, look, I don't, cannot speak on all equality issues. I don't understand them all myself. It's too complex. You know, I'm just the CEO of a company. But I do know that I have a lot of incredible women in my company, and I think they deserve to be paid the same as men. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. 
I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.